You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, let's, let's begin with prayer, and we will we'll dive in uh, to it into a two-week series on Ecclesiastes. Um, Brace yourself. (laughs) Father, in your mercies, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Lord's Day, and I ask that you will open our hearts and our minds to receive the instruction that you have for us from your word, and I pray that you'll help um, the teacher this morning, those who are here to listen, that together, collectively, we would be made bare, Lord, before um, the raw teachings of your word. And Lord, I, on the front end, want to thank you for a book like Ecclesiastes that doesn't allow us to escape into any kind of sentimentality that's devoid from real life and real living and, and real wrestling um, in light of the fact that you, Lord, are our creator and you are our redeemer. And I pray that you will help us as we enter into this. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I should give a kind of not a, a spoiler is not the right term, but let you know, my, my plan, I, I think I might dive in, this is going to be a two-week primer, but my hunch is I'm, I might return to this in the fall again. Um, I've started to do over the past couple of weeks a lot of reading in Ecclesiastes. I've not, I've not taught this book before in, in more than a kind of perfunctory introductory way. So I've taught this, for example, at Beeson in an Old Testament theology class where I, I mean, Dennis was in that class. I, I give, you know, 20 minutes to it and we move on. So I, as far as the sort of deep study of this book, I've, I've not done that. And, and now I'm, I'm, the gravitational pull of it has its, has its fangs in me, if I can mix some metaphors there. Um, so I, I, just to kind of warn you, that I'm, I'm viewing these two weeks here as helping me kind of get out of the gate for what we'll probably get back into a little bit more deeply uh, in the fall. Um, I'm fascinated by this book. I, I was, I, I was uh, in the kitchen with my wife uh, this past week talking about it, and I said, isn't it an amazing thing that a book like Ecclesiastes, if I can quote one of my colleagues, um, made the cut uh, canonically? Now, you'll, you'll know if you've done any reading in this book that there's a lot of historical background on that, and, and there were actually uh, debates, rabbinic debates, about whether or not the book of Ecclesiastes, like the book of Esther, and this was the technical terminology from the first century, whether it was a book that sullied the hands or made the hands ritually in necessity of cleansing before worship, and that, that was a shorthand way of saying whether it was canonical or not. So there there, there was some wrestling about the book of Ecclesiastes, and I find books like that interesting because they sh- they, they're the books that touch a nerve. Um, we, we find that, for example, in the New Testament as well. Uh, the book of Revelation, for example, is not universally agreed upon as being canonical. In time, of course, this becomes its ascendant status, but it was a debated reality. Um, and if you've read the book of Revelation, you might understand why. I mean, one of the fascinating features of I think Cal- John Calvin's legacy is Calvin writes commentaries on every book of the Bible um, except for the book of Revelation. He's like, well, we'll just, I'll just die and we'll move on and we'll, we'll call it good. Um, so all to say, uh, you know, that, that there are books in the Bible that are a challenge, and Ecclesiastes is certainly, 
is certainly one of them, but I'm, I'm profoundly grateful that it's here. Um, because, and as I mentioned in the prayer, one of the things I appreciate a book, about a book like Ecclesiastes and a book like Job is they, they force us as readers of the Bible um, to wrestle with the kinds of questions that really we probably on most days of the week prefer not wrestling with. And that is, what does it mean to have a God who's sovereign and is life itself really worth living I mean, is life meaningful? And which sounds like um, uh, the kind of question that being raised reminds you of why you chose not to study and, and major in philosophy as an undergrad. You know, you're like, okay, let's see what I can, I can wrestle with marketing and economics or what's the meaning of life. Well, we'll do marketing, I think. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I get why books like this are, are a challenge, but it's raising that fundamental question about what, what does life mean, and is life actually worth, worth living? Um, I've mentioned this in other contexts. I'll say it here as well to kind of, I'm, I'm going to come at this from multiple angles. But um, I, he's doleful. Um, I showed a picture of him to, to my wife this week, uh, uh, Arthur Schopenhauer. So many of you will know the name Frederick Nietzsche. Um, you know, Nietzsche's philosophy is... It's really kind of the philosophy that gave rise to so much of, uh, I hate to even call it nihilism because it's more than that, but, um, and he's broader than this. But Nietzsche went to the school of Arthur Schopenhauer, the, the philosopher of the mid-19th century, who lived in Frankfurt, ticked off at the academy for his whole life. Um, he was one of these wounded souls that, that uh, was angry and would let you know about it because he, was ne- he never received the approbation that he thought he deserved from the academic guild. Um, so he writes a book in the 1830s called um, uh, The World as Will and Representation. It's the kind of book that we would all just pass by to get to, you know, something else. Um, and he writes it, and it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible failure when it comes out. Um, nobody reads it. I mean, I, I will, uh, you know, I'll, I'll mention this to students. You know, there are worse things than a bad review of your book. The worst thing than bad reviews is no review at all. Um, you know, it's just, and, and his book was kind of no review at all. He wasn't given any, any, um, any reception by the academic guild. And so what does he do? Well, he ends up um, uh, deciding that he's going to double the size and republish it himself. That's pretty bold, actually. It's like, if you didn't like it the first time, well, I'm going to give you more. That's what we're going to do, right? And that's very much his personality. Um, and he writes, and, and, then, and then by the, by the mid-19th century, um, the, his book, the, Will, Will and Represent, the World is Will and Representation, becomes probably the most widely read philosophy book of the later part of the 19th century in, in the continent. Um, so he's a very important philosopher, and he's raising basic questions, and I've mentioned this to you before, in, on, in my dyspeptic side, when you find me on Tuesday and Thursday, you know, th- th- that, those days of the week, I feel very Schopenhauerian, I guess. Um, this has something to do with Ecclesiastes, by the way. Um, why? Because Schopenhauer raises that same question that goes all the way back to the Greek philosophers as well. Is life worth living? Is it meaningful? Aristotle raised that question. Is life really worth living? And, how, and if it is worth living, how can it be a meaningful existence? And Aristotle answered that question in his ethics by saying, yes, life is worth living. But, it's gonna, but if you're going to live life... And it's going to be worth living, and it's going to have to be lived well. Well, how do you live life well? 
by living a life of intellectual and moral virtue and excellence. That's how you live the good life. Um, and here comes Schopenhauer in the 19th century saying, I'm going to raise that same question that was raised so long ago, is life really worth living? And here's my answer, no, it's not. I'm going to tell you why life's not worth living. Life's not worth living because of the nature of our being as desiring, willing creatures. When you hear the title of Schopenhauer's work, The World as Will and Representation, we tend to think of will primarily in terms of our choosing faculty um, of what it means to be human. And, and the German concept, will, has a much broader uh, a, a range of meaning and significance beyond just our choosing, the choosing aspect of our, of, our, of our being. And it comes actually down to the core of our being as people who are filled with desire. We're hungry for things. Uh, we, we want things. St. Augustine leaned heavily into this in his own theology and reflections on the Christian canon. We are primarily creatures that hunger and desire things in our existence. We, we were filled with that kind of desire. And Schopenhauer says, and this is why life's not worth living. Because we all know what it is to be filled with desire, but we also know what it means, and that's suffering in and of itself, to desire something that we ultimately can't have or don't have, but we also know that once we get the thing that we desire, it becomes either sand through our fingers because it's transigent, it's moving, or, and we've all experienced this, it's completely unsatisfactory. It, 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 the, the, the promise was much greater than the reality of what it actually meant to, to, to now have it. Um, and of course, the illustration that he uses is, I mean, we're all adults in here, is, is, is I mean, 19th century, but he talks about sex. I mean, think about just this deep desire for sex, you know, ah, what's it all cracked up to be, right? Um, or, or fill in the blank, right? This deep desire for something, but then the deep dissatisfaction or the recognition that even when you have it, you can't really have it to its fullness. I, I would call this, with my children, the, the Christmas night effect. Um, you know, you, you've been so, you just can't wait for Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, whatever the tradition is in your family, to open those gifts and you have them and you just, you play and you play and you play and then uh, it's about seven o'clock at night and you've just run ragged with your new toys. I can remember this feeling as a kid and then all of a sudden I'm like, well, that's it, you know, 365 more days to wait for that experience again. Um, and Schopenhauer kind of smiles in his sly way from his grave all the way from the 19th century. What does it mean to live life and to live life meaningfully? And, and, and this is what I think is so fascinating. The Bible asks that question. And it does not do so in any way that will allow you to have what we might consider a bumper sticker approach or an aphoristic or a maxim or a slogan approach to the answer of this most profound and important question that we're all raising, is life really worth living? There's going to be no reduction here. There's going to be no simple um, cracking of the Bible fortune cookie to get your little answer, and then you go, well, that'll get me through today, and then I'll move on. It doesn't let you do that. The Bible actually forces you to look into the mirror and to recognize that you are aging, that you yourself are transigent and moving that you yourself can never hold on to the moment that you're in now because you're in movement. And because you're in movement, Ecclesiastes is going to raise this really big question about 
wealth, and wisdom. We'll come back to these themes again and again. The pursuit of wisdom and the pursuit of wealth. At the end of the day, the wise person dies just like the fool. And at the end of the day, the person that spends his or her life toiling to accumulate their wealth or their industry or their, their accomplishments, the, the, this is the great absurdity of some of our existence, and, and, and Ecclesiastes is going to force you to think about this. When you die, you don't get any of it. And you don't know that the person who's going to get it, whoever inherits your wealth or whoever inherits your industry or whoever has your business, that they will make good on it in the ways in which you did in your existence. And the, and the, and the Kohelet, and we'll talk about that in a second, the, the author of Ecclesiastes stands back and he says, this is Hevel. This is, and here's, are you ready for all these translations? Look at, here's verse 2, the words of the preacher, Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Um, I was, I'm, I'm going tonight uh, to speak to um, some campers at a camp up in, um, what's that, uh, Alpine camp up in, I'm going to speak to some counselors tonight, Never, I don't know what I'm doing, um, and, and, and. Uh, I got a text from the fellow that asked me to come, and, and he, he said, um, um, you know, you can speak on whatever you want to speak on. So, okay, great. Um, and, he, and, and, uh, I, I, and I'm going to still do it. I'm, we're going to talk about Ecclesiastes tonight. But he sent me a text, and he said, um, by the way, these, these are all counselors, staffers. They're probably tired at the end of their summer. So things like, you know, hashtag, um, you can do it, you know, finish strong, um, the joy of the Lord, and I said, I'm so glad you wrote that because I, I was planning on doing Ecclesiastes. And he said, he sent me a text back and said, hashtag meaningless, right? Um, you know, so I, that, 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 let's talk, we have to talk about this because if there is a major theme to the book of Ecclesiastes, we can't even get out of verse 2 without it being put right into our face. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, um, says the preacher. What does that mean? Um, the, the, uh, I have a little textbook that I've been fiddling with this summer that's a, he, a guide to the Hebrew of Ecclesiastes. And the he, and the he, they, they won't even translate this term. So they translate everything else in this guide, but they won't translate this term. They keep it in its original form. And, and the, just to get geeky with you this morning, the, the Hebrew word is hevel. Um, hevel, hevelim. Everything is vanity, vanity of vanities in a kind of superlative way. And you, we raised the question, well, why the translation vanity for Hevel? Um, and this, this actually takes some, some thought, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm not even sure completely what to do with it myself. So I'm going to give you multiple entry points to this metaphor. But the best way, I think, to understand the term first is to know what the metaphor is before we think about its significance. Um, I had done some lecturing in a, in a school down in, in Fort Lauderdale, and I was standing at a lectern like this, and I looked underneath the lectern, and there, there was a, 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 um, an ashtray. You don't see that often in seminaries. An ashtray with ashes in it. So, of course, I'm intrigued. I said, what is this? And they said, well, the professor that was here a few weeks ago was lecturing on Ecclesiastes and wanted to illustrate to the students what Hevel was. So he lit up a cigar. Um, right in class, and puffed on the cigar, and blew the smoke, and when the smoke was there, and then went away, he said, Hevel, that that's, that's, it's, it's vapor, um, it's smoke, 
it's uh, some gaseous element that's um, there, and then it's, it's gone. Um, I, I will occasionally um, imbibe in a moment of my own Hevel experiment, you know, on my front porch. Um, and, and you can, it's, I'm not, I'm trying, I'm not, don't do it as much, but every once in a while, because God loves all green herbs, um, I'll, I'm, it's a, it's a cigar, it's not, it's not, it's not pot, so be careful. Um, that, that, that went poorly quickly. Um. So, so I, I get this. You know, you light, you light a cigar and you make your little minor capital investment in this in this round stick that was made handmade somewhere. You know, and then you and you and then it's gone. Um, so that's that's what the term means. It's vapor. It's smoke. It's a, it's a cigarette puff. Um, but what does the meta, what is the metaphor meant to convey? See, that, that's the struggle. And it's why I think, for example, this textbook that I have decides to opt out of that um, answer, uh, that, that problem. We're not even going to give you a translation of it. We're just going to say, Hevel. Um, here are some of the options. Now, of course, vanity is the one that we're all most familiar with. And you, this, I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Some of you may have the RSV. I still love the RSV a lot. The NRSV. Um, the ESV Translation Committee, just to kind of give you a background on this, as I understand it, um, was working in the tradition of the RSV and the King James Version. So we're, we're not, the, the, the translation of the ESV didn't just fall out of heaven, neither did the RSV. They're, they're all based out of the King James Version tradition, and I think part of the process of the Translation Committee was when we come to a place where we're not really sure what to do with what's there, we will allow the tradition of our translation to adjudicate the problem. So if we come to something like Hevel, we're not, we're not going to be novel for the sake of novelty unless we feel like we're forced to on the basis of newer linguistic data or research or whatever. Um, but we're, we're, if, if we come to these problems, we'll allow the older translation, namely the RSV or the King James Version, to adjudicate this for us. And I think that's why we still have vanity of vanities, because that goes all the way back to the King James Version translation, and it's so much a part now of our sort of Christian discourse that we think of Hevel in terms primarily of vanity. But you can imagine immediately, can't you, how confusing that is linguistically. And what does it mean to say that something is vain? Now, in our world, when we talk about vanity, we think of it in terms of sort of external... Um, um, uh, surface accounts of people that are kind of shallow. That's what we think of vanity. Um, I think uh, Deborah Layton in her sermon this morning talked about people who you know want to are worried about their weight as being something that's a that's a product. At least in the service I heard, a product of, of vanity, right? So we think of it that in that term in a way. I think vanity probably in the old King James idea um, meant futile. It's it's something that there's a futility to existence. Um, I, here, here are some other options that are out there. The one that comes from a scholar named Michael Fox is he's gone for the translation absurd or senseless. In other words, what you'll find um, with the author of Ecclesiastes is he's looking at the observable world under the sun. That's, that's the term that he uses to describe human existence under the sun not above the sun, that's the world of God and God's wisdom and God's sovereignty. That never comes into question for Ecclesiastes. We will talk about that more next week. But just to lay it out, 
the, the author to Ecclesiastes recognizes that God does not have the problems that he is having. Um, God, God is sovereign. He's in control. He understands, but he's coming from the limited standpoint of human wisdom, trying to make sense of the world around him, try, trying to wrestle with this. And, and listen to what he says here right out of the gate. I'm going to read these first um, 11 verses to you, thinking about this in terms of absurdity or senselessness. And by the way, I should go and say, I'm not completely satisfied with limiting the translation to that either. I think we, I want to keep this metaphor broad. But this is, this is what it says, um, and, and uh, think of this in terms of absurdity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, um, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Just in case you didn't get the point. Um, three, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. Thought about that? I was just on a river last week up in Michigan. You're like, well, this river just keeps flowing, doesn't it? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear cannot be filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, just to, this is a simple, kind of paltry illustration of this from Birmingham, Alabama. But, I mean, I, I find... I actually find some comfort in the stability of certain things around me, like Red Mountain and the two towers that are there in Red Mountain and Vulcan that I, they just become, I don't know why, it's kind of weird, but they're beacons of hope for me, like that's where I, that's where I exist, right? Um, I can sit in Regent's Park and see Vulcan and go, I live near that. I don't know why that, um, but Vulcan's been there for a while. I was reading a biography on um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Charles Marsh. Um, and he describes, he's very good on the, on the American side of Bonhoeffer's journeys, and apparently Bonhoeffer drove all the way from New York State down to a conference in Mexico, but he'd heard about the problems in the Jim Crow South, and instead of going back up to New York through the Midwest like he came down, he decided to travel through Mississippi into Alabama and up this way, and he apparently traveled on old Highway 11 and then 31. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The guy whose bust is in our chapel probably saw Vulcan. That's just incredible. I mean, I'm, and he's gone. He's, and then here I am looking at Vulcan, and 100 years from now, someone else will be. I mean, this is the kind of stability to the world around us, and yet recognizing that we're not stable like that. I, I'm not Red Mountain that will be here in 100 years, 200 years, until the Lord returns. I, I'm not um, the Boardman River up in Michigan that's been running forever and a day. Um, I'm, I'm not that. That's stable, but I'm, I'm not. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. I mean, this is why I love this book. It just puts it right into life, right into your backyard. Have you worried about financial matters in your life? Have you lost sleep at night because of one of your children? Have you wondered what's going to happen with your aging parents? 
I mean, these deep existential things that touch us at various moments in more poignant ways than others, but that really grab us to the core of our being, guess what? 100 years ago, 300 years ago, there were people up at night thinking about very similar things. Is there anything really new under the sun? Anything really new? There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things to come. Um, listen to what he says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 16 about himself. <laughs> For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long uh, been forgotten. That's, that's the question that Kohelet is raising here. What is the meaning of life? And what does it mean to live when I have to come face to face with the reality that, and this is Genelette's rendition here, that in a hundred years, no one's going to remember our names. You remember, just, no one will remember our names. People who were household names a hundred years ago, say in American politics, I dare say most of us do not remember their names now. Um, that's the humbling aspect of life that the preacher is forcing you to wrestle with as you enter into your life under the sun. What's the meaning in all of this? I mean, look at verse 12. We'll keep pressing on here. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, trying to figure out things about life and what it means to be. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. And behold, all is, and here's that word again, hevel, um, absurdity, senselessness. Here's another translation for you from Craig Bartholomew. Enigmatic. We're trying to make sense of the tensions of existence, knowing that certain things can't hold up together, and yet when I try to put the pieces together, it becomes sand through my fingers, and it's just enigmatic. It doesn't yield itself to a nice logical flow. And if you're like me, you like nice logical flows. So you have a premise within a minor premise that then turns into a major premise. You love that. Give me some syllogisms that work out very nicely. And here Kohelet is saying, the author to the Ecclesiastes is saying, if that's the way in which you want to approach life, I've got bad news for you. It's enigmatic. Um, I do like the translation um, fleeting, temporary. That, that actually seems to get at the metaphor of the smoke and the breath that's here and then it's gone. Um, it can't be held on to. It's never something that can actually be grasped. Um, human existence, as it enters into the dynamics of human existence from wisdom to wealth and pleasure. And by the way, those are the three biggies in the book of Ecclesiastes. The pursuit of wisdom Understanding how to live life well under the sun. That's what wisdom is about. How do we live life well? To the, 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 um, to the uh, gaining of wealth and the enjoyment of wealth and pleasure. These are the questions that Kohela is raising. And what he says is all three of them, wisdom, wealth, and pleasure, are fleeting. They could, the thing itself can never be held on to. And, and I think, and this is hard. I think we've, it's hard to sort of press into 
how best to explain this apart from the fact that I think on a very visceral level, most of you know what I'm talking about. Most of you know what Kohelet is talking about. You know what it is to enjoy something, and I'm going to get to that before I finish today, to enjoy some aspect of your existence, but only to know that at the end of it, it's still Hevel. It's still just a puff of cigar smoke that's here, and then it's gone. That can't, it's, it's temporary. It's fleeting. I can't grasp it. Have you ever tried to hug smoke? So pressing on here, because my time is going. Uh, chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now. I'm going to test you with pleasure. This is amazing. So you've got wisdom, you've got uh, wealth, and I've got pleasure. But you know what? Behold, even this was just vanity. It was hevel. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what's the use of all of it? In other words, I can't... Do you feel that? Th- those, those rollicking moments that are just filled with joy, there's still that voice there in the back somewhere that's letting you know that you won't be, this won't be tomorrow. Tomorrow's not going to... You're having this experience now, but it's not going to be like this tomorrow or the next day. Now, what's the use of all of it if I can't hold on to it? If it's just fleeting, why even enter into it if it comes and it, it goes? I mean, that's that Schopenhauerian problem. Why don't we even enter into existence if I'm filled with desire, but then also know that my desires, when they're met, are actually fleeting? What, what's this all about, even with pleasure? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. And I, I did great work. Now he's going to start talking about his industry. I built houses and I planted vineyards. I made myself gardens and parks and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I, 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 I had male and female servants and I had servants who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks. More than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem, I gathered for myself silver and gold, treasures of kings and provinces. I even got singers, both men and women singers. And here you go, again, this speaking in the terms of a Solomonic voice, and many concubines, the delights of the Son of Man. So I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done. I considered the pleasures that I had experienced and the toil that I had expended in doing all of this. And behold, all of it was hevel and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Is life meaningful? And what can we actually hold on to? Now, I got to stop. Um, that's kind of depressing. I don't know if you feel that way. Um, But I do want you to remember something about the book of Ecclesiastes. It is wisdom. In other words, there's something on offer here that's meant to be instructive. There's also, I think, something on offer here from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I talk about this with even my children in terms of like an Ecclesiastes moment. Um, Learn uh, from the mistakes of those who have gone before you. Um, Learn from, even though, of course, 
again, this is weariness under the sun. They're not going to do it. They're going to have to learn it in the school, as we say, the school of hard knocks. But there is this sort of Ecclesiastes aspect of wisdom to let you know, well, then where do we find meaning in all of life? And we'll talk about this more next week, but I want to leave this here with you now. Where um, the author to Ecclesiastes will go again and again are to these three things. Number one, and I'll read this to you and then we'll, we'll move on. But number one, do enjoy the small pleasures in life because they are from God. It's, it's really, this, this is again, it made me even feel a little teary. Because this again is um, uh, good news and counsel to those who are seeking to make some sense of life underneath the sun. Listen to what he says at the end of chapter 2. Verse 24, there is nothing better. Can you imagine what an incredible statement? There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his or her toil. Because I saw that this is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge. But can you notice how he ends even this little section? But this, too, is vanity and a striving after wind. In other words, enjoy the simple pleasures of existence that God gives you from his hand. But know that they're fleeting as well. It's, it's, it's cigar smoke, too, those simple moments. But enjoy the good gifts that God has given you in this world. This is very much a reformational perspective on vocation, calling, and selfhood. There's no bifurcation of the, of the Christian person from the sacred and the, and, the, and the secular in the sense of I do my sacred duties on Sunday and then I go and do my secular duties, my life duties, my pleasure life out there. No, the pleasures that we experience in this world, whatever they are for you, and they're very different in here, I imagine. Some, some of you would say, you know what, it really brings me great joy when I get to do this. And you're like, really? And I'd rather go to the dentist than do that. So this is a very subjective thing. But to recognize that these good gifts come from the hand of God and they are to be enjoyed. St. Augustine from his grave smiles at this. St. Augustine says, that is right. We are desirous people whose desires can get out of whack. But when our enjoyments in this life are understood as good gifts from God, the toil of our hands, the enjoyment of pleasures in this life, when they're understood as good gifts from God, they become then conduits for the glory of God in this world, but still recognizing that life under the sun is a life that's marked by toil and hevel. And the last thing that I think where the author is going to leave you with, and this is what's such good news as well, is enjoying the simple gifts that God gives us in this life and living a life that recognizes that this is not the full sum of our reality. At the end of all things, it is to fear God and to remember his commandments, to know that God exists and he is and that our lives are ultimately directed heavenward toward him. That, and, and this is, and this is you know, this, there's no prosperity stuff here. This does not in any way get you a get-out-of-jail-free card um, from the pains and the exigencies of life. We were cleaning out some books in our house, um, doing some spring cleaning a month ago. And I saw a book there that some well-meaning heretic gave my wife. Um, and it's true. She was part of certain, I won't say the movement, but um, my, 
my wife had shared, was at the YMCA, and they started talking about childbearing, and they shared, swapped some stories, and she, she gave this book to my wife, said, this may be of interest to you, and it, the title of the book was Pain-Free Childbearing, um, all, all based off of how deep the quality of your faith is. I'm like, this is just nonsense, right? Um, Ecclesiastes looks at a book like that and says, that's, that's stupid, right? Now, there, there's no way in which human beings get any kind of get-out-of-jail-free card from what it means to be human living life under the sun. But he's helping to give us some perspective on this. So what do we do if we can't put together all the absurdities in the antinomies of our existence? What can we do if we don't have a holistic philosophy that can dot all the I's and cross all the T's? And the answer is, you can enjoy the pleasures that God gives you in this world. And number two, keep your focus ultimately on him, the fear of him, and a life that leads, leads his existence toward, toward him. So, Father, as we sort of round this out today, I ask, O oh Lord, that you will help us to continue um, to think through what it means, Lord, to be human. Um, and help us, Father, I pray, to be able to find joys in this world. For a book that seems so dyspeptic, that seems so angular, um, yet interspersed all throughout this book are these rich and beautiful pictures of just simple human existence. Help us to embrace that, Lord, to its fullness for your glory. Um, And Lord, I also pray that in the midst of our life under the sun, that you would orient us, Lord, to the fear of of God, to the fear of you, that our lives would be directed toward you. And Jesus, we'd be remiss if we didn't say thank you to you for entering into life under the sun for us. You know what this book is about, Jesus. You've entered into the antinomies of human existence, the contradictions. And yet, Lord, you have brought us safely into the very life of God because of your atoning work. Let us see you, Jesus, in a book like Ecclesiastes as well, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.